we come to the end of our journey of uh, walking through some of the words that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Um, I hope it's been uh, a challenging series uh, and I hope as well it's been a series that we can go away um, having a better grip for um, some of the challenges people long, long ago went before us had, which still resonate in our world today. Let me pray and then we'll jump into it. Uh, Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this opportunity that we get once again to come before your word. And Lord, um, we just thank you that as uh, we open it and we learn from it, that you speak to us, Lord. Um, Your word is not dead. It is alive, Lord. It is as sharp as a double-edged sword, Lord. It cuts through bone and marrow, through spirit and soul. And Lord, I pray that this morning that we might come away a little bit cut, Lord, that it might change us uh, as we read these words written to um, a place very far and distant from us, yet same in so many ways. Lord, we just thank you for uh, this word and we just pray your blessing on it now as we look into it a bit more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the term humble brag. Has anyone here heard the term humble brag? You know, it's kind of like uh, when um, you say something which sounds self-deprecating, but in reality it's it's not all that self-deprecating. You know, people on social media these days, they're pretty into humble brags. It's a great platform to make some brags about yourself, saying something humble but really just hoping people think that you're a pretty good person in the process, like celebrities, you know, they're great culprits of the humble brag. People, you know, being complaining about being swamped in the airport, oh, how terrible it is. And all your fans are there or kind of name dropping all of the people, other famous people that they're hanging out with. Well, we kind of get to this part near the end of the book in 2 Corinthians. And it feels a little bit like that's kind of what Paul's doing, isn't it? Like it's kind of like a little bit of uh, a humble brag, bragging about his accomplishments while in the process trying to stay humble. Um, and it's really interesting because... Um, in this particular part, Paul is kind of walking this really fine line because he's spent a lot of the time defending himself against the super apostles, these false teachers, these people that are coming in and saying, oh, we're way better than Paul. Um, And uh, he has spent a lot of time saying how foolish it is to brag about yourself and to build yourself up. Uh, And then we hit chapter 11 and he has to spend some time doing the exact thing that he's just been Um, you know, calling these people foolish for. So it's this kind of really tricky situation where he's kind of trying to walk this fine line of um, elevating his own resume without falling into the same trap that he has um, uh, been deriding the super apostles for. Um, He's been boasting largely about Christ. You know, that's kind of his, his argument. It's like, you know, they boast themselves up. I boast Christ. Um, I boast in weakness. I boast in humility. I boast in my people. But it kind of gets to the point where I think Paul needs, feels he needs to address some of these criticisms head on. Like he actually needs to address some of the things that have been said about him. Um, so he opens up this kind of Pandora's box and starts to boast about what he's done and where he's been. Um, Have a look from verses one. I repeat, 
Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I might do a little boasting. In my self-confidence boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Right? He's kind of saying how foolish it is for me to boast. How Maybe he's kind of naming the elephant in the room, like he's been spending all his time um, talking about how foolish it is to boast, but now I'm actually going to do the things that the fools are doing. You know, I'm, I myself am going to act a little bit like a fool. So he's kind of like laying the, the, the footwork for saying, you know, there's, you can take this a little bit sarcastically. Like there's a little bit of um, sarcasm that's being laid on here as he does a bit of this humble bragging about himself. Uh, and he goes on and says many things. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? Speaking about the um, super apostles. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Few had better Jewish credentials than Paul. As a number of times in his letters, he's had to state this. He states his clear lineage right back to the, uh, the ancestors. Um, he, in Philippians 3, he goes into more detail. He talks about being uh, circumcised on the eighth day, being of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, he's painting this picture of his fleshly superiority. If anyone is to claim that they are more because of their lineage and their heritage. He says, well, it's going to be hard to beat my background. So he spends a little bit of time talking about his, his fleshly strengths. I'll use that word. Um, but it doesn't take long before he switches from talking about his credentials to, again, boasting in his weaknesses. Um, he goes on here in verses 24. Five times. I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one three times. I was beaten with rods once. I was pelted with stones three times. I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day out in open sea. He starts to list what really doesn't seem like strengths at all. He's listing all of the times that he was nearly killed for what he was trying to do. In Paul's time, there was this inscription that Caesar Augustus um, had printed, is the word wrong, inscribed all around the empire in these different places, and it was called the Deeds of the Divine Augustus. Uh, and what it did basically was list all of his accomplishments. It was kind of, you know, he's, he's building up his own um, image or status or whatever in the minds of all of the empire. And he lists all of the places he's conquered and the, um, the armies he's raised and, you know, all of the battles that he's won. And he, he goes through this long list of all of these things. This is something that's well known. Everyone knows about it because it's all over the empire, right? Uh, what Paul is doing here in numbering and listing off these times he was beaten and flogged and all this kind of stuff, it's actually imitating the style of the deeds of the divine Augustus. So as the people reading it at the time, it would have sounded rung true to that particular style. It, it was almost like um, a satirical takeoff of what uh, Augustus writes. But of course, in this parody, he doesn't list all of the things with which uh, makes him great and mighty. He lists all of his defeats. He lists all of the times he literally nearly saw death. Flogged five times. You think flogged, oh, that sounds bad. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, 
flogging's not just something which is just a bit bad. It's, it's a near-fatal experience. Many people died from it. And that's what the Jews did, beaten with rods. That's what the Romans did. That was their form of punishment. Stoned nearly to death once, shipwrecked three times. Twelve in all. Very biblical number, isn't it? Um, Twelve times he literally looked face in the uh, death in the face. In doing the work of the kingdom, literally, he could have been thinking to himself, this might be it. I don't know if you've ever been in an experience where you've looked death in the face. Maybe you're like a car accident or like there's a split second when you think, oh, this might be it. You know, like I know some people who've kind of been in bad car accidents and that was that first split second thought that went through their heads. Twelve times Paul has looked death straight in the eye for his kingdom worth, his kingdom work. And he boasts in his suffering for his ministry. Something which the super apostles would not dare bring up. They would not dare bring up suffering for their work and their mission because they know there is nothing they could say that would compare to what Paul has seen. Uh, verse 27, I have laboured and have toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul is, you can imagine in your head those times when he's out in his travels and he's just like, I'm just sleeping on the ground. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in days. It's freezing. Um, some of his shipwrecks, he just washes up on a shore without any clothes. Like crazy stuff, isn't it? Talk about the, um, the anti-prosperity doctrine, right? He doesn't talk about how he prospers. He talks about literally how like he's lived like a homeless person, like he's, he's lived like um, a, a criminal on the run. Um, his life has not been um, lovely houses and good meals and being well fed. Um, no privilege here, no horses and chariots, no servants, no mansions. We read through Acts recently in our life group, I've mentioned it a couple of times, really great experience um, to just kind of read through a big long book in a big block Uh, and the one thing that I noticed in it was every time Paul goes to a place he just doesn't know what's going to happen as in like every time he goes to a new town he's like this could be it and even when he goes to a town and things go well and like people listen to him and a church is formed he still gets arrested by the local magistrate for causing trouble and flogged or stoned or arrested and thrown in jail like every time he goes to a new place you kind of think of it as his missionary travels as just being like just amazing experiences of the spirit and healings and miracles and people in their thousands but this was a more of the reality of it as you read through acts time and time again he faced real real hardship and in the end as he's boasting it doesn't take him long to turn from boasting in his own personal accomplishments to boasting in his weaknesses, to boasting in his suffering. It's like he he just kind of keeps going back to it, like intentionally or unintentionally. Um, Verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly, and do I not inwardly burn? 
If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. After all is said and done, one of his great pains are actually the churches. They're his people. This is the thing that, that weighs him down more than physical attacks on his body, more than hunger and thirst and, and you know, homelessness or whatever it is. What weighs him down was knowing that his churches are out there and sometimes he wishes he could be with them and help them, but he can't. You know, often we think of Paul as like a harsh figure. You know, like sometimes people talk about Paul as like a harsh, he he was so harsh in some of his teachings and all this kind of thing. But then as I was doing this this week, I was like, well, I'd be harsh too if I had been flogged five times and beaten with, you know what I mean? If I'd done this, maybe I would be a bit harsh sometimes too, because you're just like, guys, get it together. Your problems aren't that big, you know? But in the end, his heart is for his people. This is what his greatest concern is. For Paul... The single most important qualification for anyone who takes up a leadership role is to recognise that your strength is in your weakness. To recognise that the most important thing is to understand your own personal limitations. And potentially, this is an idea that has framed Paul's entire Christian walk strength in weakness, that only when I am weak, then the strength of God comes through. Think about um, the road to Damascus story. It's told in full three times in Acts, um, but it mentions a number of times that Paul would repeat it. It was often the first thing he would say when he goes to a new place. He repeats his story about how he was the great and mighty Saul, um, the persecutor of the church, rooting out this, this Jesus movement that was going around causing trouble. And on his way to Damascus, to smash the church in Damascus, he is humbled. He is brought low. He realises that his strength is in fact nothing. The, the, The strongest strength that he could show is in fact pure weakness before God. And in this story that he retells time and time again, you also kind of see um, the fact that that conversion experience continues to shape him decades and decades later, right? At this stage, he's an old man writing these letters. And the young man that was um, blinded on the road to Damascus is probably just a distant memory, but um, he's continued to be shaped by the reality that when he came in his strength, he recognised his most valuable resource or his most valuable self-reflection was that he was nothing before the Lord, that he was truly weak. A commentator wrote, coming close to God makes you weaker physically, mentally, spiritually. God does this in order to dwell in you with his might since it is your weakness that makes room for his strength. Sometimes I think that idea of our own personal strength, all it becomes is a shield that kind of keeps God out. And I think the point that Paul is making is is that in truly accepting one's weakness, then the space is made to be filled with the strength of God. That God's greatest gift of grace is the grace of weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. About a thousand years ago, there was a guy called King Canute. If you've if you watch Viking series, he's one of the characters that pops up in the Viking series. Um, he was the king of England, Norway, Denmark, 
for a period. Um, and uh, there was a stage uh, later in his reign when he was a bit, of, a bit sick of the yes men. All the people that would come in his court and flatter him and say how amazing he was and how powerful he was and how good he was. So one day he ordered that his throne be taken down to the shore. And his throne was set up on the shore and all of the court uh, assemble around him. Um, and from his chair, he makes a decree, right? From the seat of power, he makes this decree. Tide, stay out. The waves keep coming and the court all watches as the king on his throne in all of his finery gets deeper and deeper into the water as the tide comes further and further in. Um, he eventually stands up and says, the power of kings is empty and worthless. Only the one who can command the waves has true power. There's something in that, isn't there? That to really recognise greatness and strength, you need to recognise your own weakness and to come at it with humility. Now, this truly is the theme of the book of 2 Corinthians. If there is one thing to take away, this is it. Um, Paul states and restates and argues and re-argues this simple idea over and over that only in weakness can you be strong in faith. There is no other way. Arrogance, pride, self-reliance, all they do is block the work of the Holy Spirit in changing your heart. All they will do is hold back the power of God to change and reshape us. Sometimes when we talk um, or think about um, evangelism and we think about like those, the evangelistic preachers of old, we kind of um, frame it with imagery of power. You're like a strong preacher who's powerful and confronting and speaks um, with great gusto from the front. Um, at least that was kind of my experience growing up. And you often would say, oh, why can't we have another Billy Graham or whoever it was, right? A strong, um, uh, charismatic preacher that would powerfully preach the gospel. Um, but as I was reading this, I was kind of like, this is, this is actually what Paul um, faces. Like this is the culture that he com he's confronted with, this culture of powerful speakers and the power of words. Because um, he's in the era of Greek philosophy, right? When they would literally go and they would listen to the latest philosopher speak and, and what, they, um, what they lauded, what they celebrated was people who had that, the power of the gift of the gap, you know, people who had the, the ability to speak powerfully. Um, but Paul doesn't, right? It's, it's, it, it mentions that a number of times. Uh, and Paul, when he goes to a place, what does he say? He says, I, I came to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like the simplest of messages, not beautiful and eloquent, eloquent, not flowery, not powerful. He, he's kind of countercultural to that. He says, in fact, what the people need to hear isn't the strength of the speaker at all. What they need to hear is the weakness and the humility of the speaker so that there might be space for the Holy Spirit to do the real work. Because there's no words that you or I could ever say that would really change someone's heart. There's no sentence that we could put together, no combination of you know, nouns and verbs or whatever that's going to actually change someone's heart and open them up to the reality of God. Only the work of the Spirit would ever do that. And in one sense, part of me thinks, yeah, how foolish was it to think that if I just had the right argument, I could convince someone? 
No, but Paul shows us that in weakness, this is where the strength of God is found. Um, there's a, a theologian called uh, John Stott. He's, he's passed away now. He was kind of one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Um, an English guy, wrote a lot of great books. I still read a lot of his commentaries today. Um, he tells his story in the 50s, it was, when he was um, invited to speak at Sydney Uni, at, at the Sydney Mission in the university. So they've lined up this great event in the Great Hall in Sydney Uni and um, the night before, he just loses his voice. It's completely gone. They've got this guy from the other side of the world to come and speak. The night before, he loses his voice. I, I, I've been in not that situation, but I, I know what that's like, right? So everyone gathered together and they're praying for him. They're praying that, you know, God might use him or God might heal him or whatever. Next morning, he wakes up. Nothing. He says he got up to the microphone and he croaked his message. He said it was just terrible. He says he said half of what he was going to say. But when the time came and the other, the other guys got up and, and invited people down the front, he said it was a flood of people that came down the front. For decades after, he says, people would often um, see me and say, oh, do you remember that day in the Great Hall? And he's like, yeah, I remember it. <laughs> it was terrible. But his takeaway from it was that the most successful preach he ever had was when he could barely say a word. You know, that is the power of God through the weakness of us. That what God needs from us more than anything is an open heart and an ability to actually be available for whatever the work God has for us. There is no strength in this world. There is no strength in our walk with God, in relying on ourselves. The only strength we can have is to recognise that nothing of us and all of him is what uh, will actually grow us into maturity in the faith. So here's where we're going to land the plane on our series on 2 Corinthians. How do we embrace weakness in our walk of faith? If this is the one message that Paul wants us to take away, how do we actually do it? How do we embrace weakness in our walk of faith? How do we embrace weakness in our workplace as Christians um, in our workplace? Maybe how do we embrace weakness as we lead others or manage others? How do we embrace weakness when we're confronted with challenging problems and situations? How do we embrace weakness in conversations with people whom we disagree uh, and it seems thanks to social media and the internet there's ample opportunity to have a conversations with people who we disagree how do we embrace weakness in these situations how do we embrace weakness when making decisions for our future and for our lives how do we embrace weakness when we're thinking about the plans that we have for the future we're thinking about what we might do with the short time we have here? How do we embrace weakness and, and give that over to God? What he might do for our future and for our lives? How do we embrace weakness in providing for our family? In recognising that every good gift comes from the Heavenly Father, uh, not from our own strength, 
but as a, a gift of grace given to us? How do we embrace weakness in sharing our faith with friends and family and colleagues and people that we meet? How do we embrace weakness when we're trying to grow in spiritual maturity, recognising that it's actually you know, not about how much head knowledge we can have um, or, 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 you know, or having the right answer to the right question, but it's actually about opening ourselves up to being remade and changed and shaped? How do we embrace weakness with how we relate to our neighbours and our community and the people around us, not getting caught up in, you know, um, in image or, or trying to keep up with the lifestyles of others around? How do we embrace weakness in these things? Because I think for us, a challenge from, from this book as we go away, it needs to be, are there areas of my life where I'm just too self-reliant? Are there areas of my life where I'm too prideful and my self-reliance and my pride are actually just holding God at bay from doing the work of making me in his image? How can we embrace our weakness more that we might become closer to God in it? Because only in embracing weakness can we find spiritual maturity and the strength of God that Paul talks about.